Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Nick Williams, who holds a PhD in biological sciences and has worked in the pharmaceutical industry. Nick first became aware of the trans issue in 2017 and now works full-time as director of Fair Play for Women, which was set up to organize a street campaign to raise awareness during the public consultation about GRA reforms. Now grown into an influential and successful volunteer organization, providing advice to policymakers on how to fairly balance the rights of women and people who identify as transgender, Nick works on big campaigns to keep women's spaces male-free to include prisons, sports, and taking the ONS to court to stop them redefining sex in the census. I welcome Nick Williams to Savage Minds. I want to go back to your becoming aware of this issue, the gender debate issue in 2017. What brought you to this issue? Well, it was, I mean, it was accidental, to be honest. Um, I mean, I, um, I didn't really know anything about it for, for a long time. And um, it, was a, it was a conversation with a friend. She was, she was talking about some things she'd seen on Mum's Net. Um, and you know, she she started to say, you know, some some women are getting called turfs, um, and it was about the transgender issue. And um, I mean, I think my first my first reaction, I think, is the same, probably the same as many other women, is, well, you know, what's it got to do with me? Um, what what harm does it do? You know, I mean, myself as a lesbian, you know, I sort of felt like I should I ought to have a kinship. <laughs> with other people that are different. Um, so my first reaction was, well, interesting, but not really my, nothing really to do with me. But then just the more I talked to her, the more we chatted about it, and I could see then that there were overlaps. There were, there were issues, there were, there were ways that this would be affecting women, uh, and lesbians in particular. I think that was what really caught me. Um, and I, I joined a few groups uh, online, um, chatted to different people, got involved in the community, um, and just started to learn, I think, of, of, from other people. And I think the, the biggest shock to me, which I think then sort of spurred me into action, was realising that nobody really was doing anything about it. Um, there were very few people. I mean, there were some um, notable exceptions. You know, G- Julie Bindle was obviously speaking about it, Magdalene Burns. Um, but I think what was shocking and I think what made me angry was that professional feminists, you know, the women that get paid to run organisations to stand up on behalf of women, weren't doing anything. You know, um, they'd been taken in by this idea that trans women are women and therefore they stood for trans women too. And that just left a gaping hole then for for the specific issues to do with the sex-based rights of women. And I, well, I think I just thought, well, (laughs) to be honest, if no one else is going to do it, I need to get involved. Um, And I started doing work. Um, you know, just voluntary work, um, doing some research, writing things, putting things on Twitter, on Facebook, and it kind of started from there, really. But I certainly didn't set out to um, run a, a grassroots organisation like Fair Play for Women. Um, but, you know, that's the way life goes, and here I am. <laughs> well, your work in Fair Play has been amazing, extraordinarily, really, because you've reached to some of the key topics that, as they say in internet world or social media world, that turf people or they peak them. One being the sports issue, one being the prison issue. And you have gotten on both, and you've gotten to the roots of a lot of these uh, problems, not least of which is you're raising awareness during the public consultation about the GRE reform And then on the heels of that, looking to how big campaigns are being launched 
towards certain types of entities, such as the International Olympics Committee, the IOC, or the prison system. How is it that you're taking the ONS to court to stop them redefining sex in the census, for instance, is integral to sports and prisons being kept safe for women? Because these are all very interrelated, and you know this working on the ground, but a lot of our listeners will be back at that step you mentioned five minutes ago. What harm is there in just saying she? What harm is there in letting a guy change in the next room or in the next bench over in my gym? Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think what's, what, what's happened and why this is so dangerous, it's, it's, it's a distorted debate. One group is, is powerful. One side of the argument is well-funded, well-represented, given a platform, and the other side women, um, we are excluded from that debate, um, we are denigrated in it, we are, um, we don't have the opportunities to speak. And so I think one of the things that motivated me with Fair Play for Women was to try to rebalance that, to, to find a way for um, the other side to be spoken about, but to do it in a way that was evidence-based, respectful, but rational, Um, because I think that was what was lacking. Um, What we we ended up seeing was um, a few people, um, when you get to that point where you're so frustrated and angry that it looks to other people like, you know, we've got crazy women just shouting, but actually it's because we get to the end of our tether. So I wanted to get to a point where actually let's, let's get some evidence. Let's have some, some real talking points. And I want to do this in a slightly different way. So that's, that's the, um, the, uh, the brand, I guess, of, of fair play for women. It's, it's, it's moderate, it's respectful, it's careful, but it's, it's underpinned by evidence. And the, the objective is to, to change the policy. Well, actually, the, the objective is to make sure women and girls aren't forgotten in policymaking. So that was why we chose areas such as prisons and sport, because they're, they're, they're key areas that people can understand. And there are, they are ways where there are issues where women have clearly been forgotten. And we need women to, to have their voice. And so we wanted to find a way of getting in, in to sit at the table, to talk about the issues, to rebalance things. Um, but, you know, I've mentioned they're evidence-based and, you know, fair play for women, that's a really important part to the work we do, is everything we do is, is, is evidenced. Um, and I think that, that comes from my my background um, as a scientist, you know, to me, facts are very important. And I I think that was something that I also saw was missing in this debate is, um, you know, the the trans lobby were, well, (laughs) basically just making stuff up. I mean, it it was, I mean, that was absolutely outraged, really, that people were trying to convince us of things that we had no factual basis whatsoever. With a female penis, you mean? Well, exactly. Yes. You know, it, it was just ludicrous to me. And I think um, that that made me angry, too. That 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 motivated me to get involved because you have to base the argument on facts. There have to be facts involved. <laughs> um, and the lack of facts was a, was a real problem. So that's what I hope that Fair Play for Women could inject really into this. This issue is is some some reality some some respect but also um certainty you know you know there are truths that must be held on to and that's what we we will do in a sort of an uncompromising way science matters in this debate and you're being a scientist helps this but what about let's go to the sports issue first because uh that's the issue which i knew when you were working on this, I thought, well, that's a really smart move. Because sad as it is to say, 
people don't care as much about being, women being raped in prisons as they do about yeah. unfairness, which is a shocking thing for me to say, mm. but we're seeing the evidence right now roll out, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's completely true. And I think, you know, we started after GRA reform, after that campaign, we, we moved into prisons because that was a really important area. Um, but I was absolutely, you know, I was really um, quite shocked and disappointed, really, at how little people really care about women in prison. And it was a really a, a, dif- a difficult one to campaign on because, you know, although it was outrageous that think that men were in women's prisons, it 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 barely registered um, in terms of outrage in the general public. You know, we had to push really hard. Uh, and we still do because it's really important. But something like sport was 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 different because people, for some reason, care about sport more than women in prison. Um, and I think because it touches on people's basic understanding of fairness, um, people can understand it. People can intuitively realize that it's wrong to allow people who are born male into women's into female sports you know it's unfair and it's unsafe um and i think also men get annoyed about it too men value fairness in sport um and so it's been something that we can talk to you know we can inspire both women and men to to be annoyed about and to want to to talk about. So it's been a really good reach through issue for us. It's been easy to explain. Uh, There have been some great examples that we can hold up for the unfairness. Um, And well, with the Olympics literally around the corner, we're we're going to see the the world peaked, I think, soon when we watch Laurel Hubbard lifting um, on the stage. Uh, whether whether Laurel wins or not is irrelevant. Um, seeing somebody um, taking the place of a woman, you know, it's visual and it's powerful. And I really hope the world takes notice. It's phenomenal how many people still think, however, that we're the meanies in the situation. It It's shocking to me, and I'm a cultural anthropologist, but oh my gosh, if there was ever evidence for social misogyny, this is it. When you still have people, I'm sure you saw Laura Penny's tweets last week. She's gone into hiding, I believe. But she basically said on the changing room issue that women were at fault for looking at female penises. You know, this is like a, a complete reversal of what's gone on. Now, in the sporting world, There's been a lot of debate. I wrote about this several years ago, several times. We've got wonderful scientists like Emma Hilton, your work on this. Then you have the bizarre case of Castro Semenya. Now tell me how it is that in 2021, we're looking at an Olympics where women are being removed, men are being included in women's sports, that. And then we have various organizations such as rugby that are able to say no men and women's sports where others in other countries as well are saying that's okay. It it shouldn't take that much science to show people a fractured skull as in the Fallon Fox fight that occurred about five years ago. So why is it so hard to convince sporting officials and there is such a thing as sports science so there are sports scientists who know better what where is this dilemma having its greatest struggle for us yeah well i I mean i've not met a single sort sports scientist that doesn't know this is wrong i mean nobody um actually thinks it's fair to allow um men into women's sports i mean it's as simple as that um the problem is is that um for years um you know trans lobby groups have, have infiltrated these organizations you know it's, it's a political issue now it's a it's a pr issue 
Um, and so, you know, the inconvenient facts have to be set aside um, so that the PR of this issue, so that, you know, that a, uh, the sports body can show that they're inclusive, etc., cetera, uh, has dominated. Um, and of course, when it comes to people speaking out, um, they can, there's reputational damage for, it, for the individual to do that. It's really hard to stand up against a large organisation that's your employer. Um, so it's not that the science isn't strong enough. It's not that people don't believe the science. It's that people can't afford to believe the science. They have to put it to one side and they have to follow um, the new orthodoxy, which is that trans women are women and therefore they should be in women's sport. And there's an awful lot of frustration behind the scenes. Um, but everyone, no one, a few people dare to speak out. And I think, you know, that's, that's the point of fair play for women in a way is, is we say the things that can't, you know, that we say what's the taboo, because it's a taboo these days to say that trans women are male, you know, and, I've been in policy meetings with different national governing bodies of sport, and you know I've I've used that phrase um, because you know after all it's the it's the crux of the issue, isn't it? It's the, it's the the very reason why a trans woman shouldn't play women's sport is not because this person is transgender; it's because they're males, and you have to you have to name the problem. So I insist on using that word. Uh, but I've been told in meetings, you know, please don't use that word. It's it's um, it's it, it can feel offensive. It can feel unsafe for some other people. And you know, I, I have to say, but sorry, I, I mean, you, you've invited me here today as the representative of um, of women, um, and I'm here to speak on behalf of sex-based rights. You know, that's what I come and do. And the words male and female, I, I can't do my job if I don't use the words male and female. So I'm sorry, you know, although I say it with the greatest of respect and I understand it might be uh, painful for some people to hear, it is true that trans women are male and we have to, in a policy meeting, talk about those facts. You know, fine, on, on the street, if there's a trans woman walking down the, the road, I don't feel compelled to shout that person is male because in, in in social life there are certain things we do and we don't do but in a policy meeting when we're actually weighing up um, the way a policy would impact different groups we have to speak um, the, the reality we have to be grown up enough in those policy meetings to understand that it's not personal well, you were invited to world athletics in Switzerland to talk about the rules for trans athletes you were one of 30 people present. Hmm. Can yeah. you talk about what happened at that meeting? And were you also asked not to refer to these men as males? Yeah, yeah, it definitely happened. I mean, I was invited to that meeting through, um, well, I, I managed to invite myself and I couldn't be refused. It was one of those uh, persistent uh, <laughs> things you know they didn't really want me there but what it was was world athletics um was trying to sort out was trying to bring together other sports other other international federations all into the same room to talk about this this knotty problem of trans issues and and you know what should the rules be because the ioc had had its rules around testosterone suppression it was clear that that wasn't really working great and so um, the international federations the individual sports wanted to look at it and so world athletics set this meeting up it was in uh, Lausanne in, in Switzerland um, and I went I went there for the, for the, for the day for the for this meeting and I think probably seven or eight different sports were there there's about 30 different people lawyers medics, sports, sports science specialists, trans groups, um, and me. So I was there to speak for women. And it was, it was a very hostile meeting. People didn't want me there. I had to fight to speak. I had to say things that I knew people didn't want to, 
to hear. You know, it, it was really uncomfortable. It was, it was. I, I should say, it was the worst meeting I've ever been in my life. To be <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I was told a few times not to use certain words. Someone, someone came up to me at lunchtime to have a quiet word in my ear that I would probably get on much better if I didn't use certain words. Uh, you know, these were just basic words like male, male puberty, uh, things like that. You know, I wasn't sort of, you know, I wasn't being offensive in any way. So I, I go out of my way to be, to be polite in these meetings. You know, I, I, I certainly don't leave any open goals for people to, to attack me. So, you know, and it, and I, I just had to hold my ground. You know, I really had to hold it, but it was difficult because um, the pressure that they put on me to comply, to, to back down, uh, was immense. Um, but there was a shocking moment when I, and I won't name names on this, but there was, a, there was quite a respected uh, female um, lawyer that was there, human rights lawyer. And um, I'd contacted her before the meeting to say I was going to be there. And, you know, I'd really, I'd really like to just have a moment to chat with her, you know, over lunch or something. And she didn't get back to me. Anyway, in the meeting, I, uh, you know, at, at the break, I, I went over and introduced myself. And I said, you know, could we just chat over lunch? I'd, I'd be interested in a few of your thoughts on things. And um, to my face, she, she refused. She just said, no, I've got nothing, extra, nothing I can tell you. Uh, no, I won't speak to you. And I, I, I literally, I just couldn't believe it, you know, that people wouldn't even talk about it. It was as if even being seen speaking to me in the room would have put them, would have undermined somebody, you know, that other, pe that other people would have seen that they're talking to the turf, you know. Um, and that was where, you know, that was in 2019. And that's the kind of battles that we're having to have. You know, we, we have to battle to get into those meetings. But then when we're there, God, we're put under pressure, you know, and it's it's scary. You know, it's um, although I, you know, I put on the front that I was confident and I was, you know, I was there to get a job done. But God, <laughs> underneath it was it was horrible. It was unpleasant, you know, and I'll say, you know, after that meeting at the end, when I went back to my hotel room, I burst into tears. You know, it was that kind of day where I'd had to fight every moment. Um, but, you know, that's what we have to do. And that's what I hope. It's those types of things that open doors for the people then. It's someone had to be the first one to go in that room um, and normalise it. What year did that happen? 2019, that meeting was. And a lot has changed since then. It has. Since then, we've seen the monstering of Martina Navratilova on Twitter for her making similarly 100% scientifically based statement about men in sports. Now, as the listeners can tell, I, I don't even use the word male in this context simply because part of me, Nick, thinks that it's great to do the work that we do, especially you, you're doing advocacy, I'm doing journalism, but I found myself at the other end of an NUJ document telling me how I had to refer to these men. And I thought, whoa, uh, no, <laughs> this is Orwellian when I have to be dictated how to write, what pronouns to use, etc. Now, I really appreciate your work because you've gotten right at the the throat of the dragon, as it were, you are addressing agencies such as World Athletics, and you had a chat with Martina Navratilova as well about this issue. I'm wondering if you could talk about not only that discussion, but maybe also what do you think influenced Martina to move on from taking what many think was a a harder line position in those weeks and months following the hazing of her on Twitter to then forming a sports uh, NGO, which is considering and is more gentle handed about men and women's sports. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, the conversation with Martina was one of those highlights of, uh, <laughs> 
of, of this work. You know, there, <laughs> there, there's some really tough bits, um, you know, that I've just explained about like being in those meetings. But then there are there are moments of joy where you realise this is what keeps you going. You know, so the, the the opportunity to speak to Martina was was amazing, and that's one of those uh, one of the things I'll always remember. I mean, I, I always as a as a girl, you know, would watch her play. You know, she was a real idol for me, and you know, there I was speaking to her. Um, but what what started is, is I'd seen on on Twitter that she'd mentioned, you know, she she was spotting a few things on Twitter, uh, and so this was before she came out and spoke about it. Um, and I thought, well, do you know what? Sometimes you just have to try to connect with somebody, and you know, I'd managed to DM her and. And I just sort of laid it out and I said, look, you know, there's a problem here for lesbians. What, you know, please don't think that we are, um, we're, we're not anti anybody, but we're, we're sticking up for ourselves and there's a problem with lesbians. And I think she could see that. And that, I think that spurred her into looking into this more. And so she agreed to have a conversation and we chatted on the phone. Um, and, you know, it was after that that she then, said a little bit more and then obviously once she started everyone jumped on that and it, it blew up into uh into into a crazy thing i mean she was shocked at the response she wasn't prepared for that you know i i suggested to her that it might be um that there would be backlash but i think until you get until you receive the backlash you don't quite realize how how enormous it would be and i think the the first thing that happened is that she was she was dropped as an ambassador for this organisation called uh, Athlete Ally, I think it's called, something like that. Um, and I, you know, it, I think what, what it shows is if somebody like Martina, you know, an absolute, um, you know, God, I mean, if there's an, if there's an ambassador for, for LGB people, God, it's, it's Martina, isn't it? Uh, if she can be considered a bigot, if she can be dropped by her own community in the way that she was, that just shows there's a hell of a problem. Um, so she, she, that spurred her into action and, and it's been great to see her, her, doing, her doing more. Um, and of course, after that, we got Sharon Davis involved or you know, other people. Um, and that's been, that's been a fantastic part of this, of this journey. But um, I think the, the, one of the, the funniest moments, and which was surreal for me, was uh, when I was having a chat with Martina on the phone. And um, in the background, her wife was, um, was calling, asking her what, <laughs> what did they want to have for dinner. And so I sort of heard them in the background discussing that they were going to have fish that night and uh, sorting out lunch while I was chatting to her. It was, it was amazing. It was, a, it was one of those memories that I'll always, uh, I'll always chuckle over, really. Uh, speaking to an icon while she decides what she's going to have for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) But then after she was really attacked quite badly on Twitter, months later, she did form an organization that was much softer on the question. It didn't necessarily backtrack on her comments, but it did to many feminists. Many feminists read this as sort of a defiance of her original denouncement of men and women's sports. What are your thoughts on the organization that takes to task the idea that no men should be included in women's sports? That's Mm. basically making room for certain trans-identified men to be in women's sports. Yeah, I mean, I think Martina's focus now is on elite sport um, and trying to hold the rules um, that we've got rather than advance them. Because of course, in America, there's a slightly different context in that they've got the problem of um, basically self-identifying into sport. You know, you've got the um, uh, C.C. Telfler and, and various other young um, trans males that are that are getting scholarships to run in in girls and women's university teams, things like that. So they've got that issue, um, and so I think Martina is 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 certainly very clear that that shouldn't be allowed. There shouldn't be 
then there needs to be some rules involved. And so I think their strategy is to hold the line that self-ID must not come in. It must be, at the very least, some type of testosterone suppression. Now, I differ with, I, I differ there, and I come away, you know, I have a different view to Martina on that one, in that, you know, and this is from the scientific point of view, that actually reducing testosterone isn't enough to reduce, uh, to eliminate all of that male advantage. So it's not good enough. Um, so, you know, I, I would, I want to see those rules changed. I want the testosterone limit to be, um, to be discarded because it's, it doesn't work. Um, because unfortunately the reality is as much as somebody would like to find a way to have fairness and safety and inclusion in sport, it's just impossible. You can't. Once you've, once you've been through male puberty, you know, you, you've got the advantage. So, so yeah, so I, I, I differ from Martina on that one uh, in that I think testosterone suppression can't be the answer. It's not, it's not a good enough compromise. Um, and also I think that uh, amateur sport matters too. Um, and in fact, I think in a way amateur sport matters more. Um, or certainly as much as elite sport, because so many women play amateur sport. You know, it touches so many women's lives. Whereas elite sport is is a, is a few women that that are that that lose out on places. But you know, grassroots sport. Um, you know, girls wanting to get into sport, women wanting to play sport as a as a, um, a hobby. Um, you know, that's, that's important to people's lives. You know, there's a, huge, there's a huge push to get more women to play sport because they're, they're, we're underrepresented in sport. Yet at the same time, we've got this policy that takes away all the fun and fairness out of sport because we allow um, males to play. And, you know, there's this ridiculous situation that we're looking at at the moment in cricket where I know that there are, uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a relatively low-level club you know it's it's not a it's not a top county level it's just in the development league they've got a trans player um and you know the other teams have to play against this person which is clearly unfair and what, what we've got are girls 13 year old girls have to play women's cricket because there's there aren't enough um girls who play cricket so there's not enough to make their own teams up so Women's cricket at the at the low levels starts at the age of 13. So you've got a 13-year-old girl being bowled at by a six foot two, 40-year-old male. And it's dangerous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And girls don't want to play. They don't want to do it. Parents don't want to let their girls play. You know, that's that's the reality of how these policies impact. Girls just disappear out of the sport. The cricket ball is made out of what material? Well, it's, it's damn hard, put it that way. I think it's leather coated and I don't know what the sort, but it's, it's a hard ball. I mean, you, you have to wear protective gear to play cricket for a reason. Uh, and being, um, you know, either bowled at or hit with a ball from the bat, you know, people do get, do, do get injured. So, you know, people break fingers, people, um, it's, it's, a, it's a dangerous sport. Um, not as dangerous as rugby, but it's it's dangerous, and so you know we do need to to think about that. And so we're talking to the the English Cricket Board about their policy, and uh, you know it's hard work because they are so caught up in the trans ideology, they really struggle to to see the problem. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Aside from cricket, there is the wider debate of people like Laura Penny, Owen Jones, who are recalcitrant in their views. They will not even cede the idea that sex is a reality. 
Now we're up against the wall with these types because these are people in the media who are putting out series of articles about how gender is now somatic and sex is an ideology. This is what they are part of spinning in this machinery today. So when you go to like world athletics in Switzerland, you're told not to mention men. When you're dealing with a multiple winner of Wimbledon on the phone, <laughs> who's afraid to speak out, and then you take the ONS to court to stop them from redefining sex in the census, we're talking about institutional capture on a global scale. Now, how is it that women such as yourself, many other women who formed their own groups, individual women who are out there letter writing to the BBC, to ITV, because they had a show about women in sports and didn't include, surprise, surprise, not one woman. And all of the individuals and groups being involved in this, since you and I met on a Facebook group discussing this subject about 2017. So how is it that women are the David in this scenario with the slingshot fighting not one Goliath, many Goliaths that are paid by big donors, the pharma industry, and so much money is supporting the churning out of their messages such that we have made a lot of headway in this debate because now from 2017 to now it's opposite day. Now women are starting to be heard. Now, well, the Guardian isn't exactly covering our voices much, but we had news from the Spectator recently that there is a tussle at the head of the Guardian between various power heads and what is being really linked to the gender wars and the undoing of that publication. So you've voiced your concern for lesbians and young lesbians especially. Like you, I agree that amateur sports is more important because it's something that most of us do. Even if we only do it for one year in high school or one year in university, we do it, all of us where the Martina Navratilovas are very few. They're not even the 1%, they're less. They are symbolically important for all of us, but we're looking at a world where we're having to face this wave of disinformation from the media, from pu public policy makers like Cancer Research that tells women one can only wonder how an immigrant woman from Bangladesh will understand a banner that says cervix havers get checked, right? And all these other organizations that have been bought out by Stonewall, and they are able to spin a narrative that is not only in direct contradiction to science, not only in direct contradiction to the legal rights of women in prison or women in sports, but they are also really anti-science in every way and logic. So we're having to fight a very Orwellian battle here. We're fighting people who are saying that two plus two is five. And, and we're making headway. But what do you see as the bigger hurdles that are remaining, especially since your big victory against the ONS? Well, I think, I mean, you're right. This, this idea of institutional capture, that's, that's at the heart of this. And um, that's, the, that's the danger, I think, because We've got the lobby. We've got the big pressure groups like Stonewall, um, Gendered Intelligence, others, and you know they're very good at what they do. They've got a lot of money. They've got the staff. They've got they've got everything. They you know they are the Goliath in this. But actually, you know, lobby groups lobby. That's what they do. <laughs> um, so we almost can't blame. Um, Stonewall for, for pushing at an open door because, you know, that's that's their objective, isn't it? Who I blame and who need to get their house in order are the large institutions that have allowed their staff to become captured. And that was what we saw with the ONS case. Um, what had happened there is that the, um, the actual staff within the ONS, a very high up senior people within the ONS, 
had essentially turned into trans activists. They were doing the lobbying um, within the organization um, for, to, to, to push through the ideology. You know, Stonewall were nowhere to be seen really at this point. You know, Stonewall could have, have you know, have got clean hands when it comes to the, to the ONS um, issue because they'd, they'd already um, got staff members doing their work for them. And that's why it's so difficult to reverse this because we're up against um, senior people within large organisations pushing through their pet projects. Um, and that was what was happening um, at the ONS and the census. You know, there were people there who were, who, who were wedded to the idea that sex, sex was self-identified um, and it was impossible to, to break through. You know, you start off with these things in good faith. You think, well, I'll be involved in the stakeholder work. We'll, we'll, we, we act in good faith. We talk about the issues. We, we, we have the arguments. We put the case. But in the end, it was clear that the ONS were not going to budge on it. And that was why, in the end, we took, we took the case, because, you know, we'd, we'd worked on this for over 18 months with them. And still, they just threw it away and decided that they would just do what they were going to do anyway. Um, and all that was left was, 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 was the courts. And, you know, they, they took a gamble. They thought that we weren't going to, to take it to court. They, they underestimated us. Um, and, you know, they thought they were powerful. They could, in the end, just do what they wanted. Um, and I think that was why I decided, in the end, to, to really take this case and to take the gamble, because it was a gamble. It's because we had to show that David, <laughs> in the David and Goliath, would not back down. We would go that extra mile. We would go. We, we were those crazy people that would take you to court if you, if you don't do it properly. <laughs> Um, and it was a huge amount of work. A lot of people were involved behind the scenes. Um, but we, we got to court in, in such a, a short period of time. God, the pressure to, to do it was immense. Um, you know, the fundraising that we had to do within a few weeks, we raised £100,000. It was amazing. I mean, it was a real roller coaster. It was exciting. Um, and then when we won, it was amazing. Absolutely. And I, and I just hope that, you know, although obviously that was an important win for the census, it was the message that it, 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 it gave across to all the other institu institutions is that don't mess with us because we will take you to court. We will win. We will, we will raise that money and we will hold you to account. For our listeners outside of the UK, can you explain what that decision actually translates to? The ONS is the Office of National Statistics. Yeah, so basically the Office of National Statistics, every 10 years, there is a, a national census. Um, and that census is it's, it's mandated by law that everybody must answer the questions asked by the census. Um, and one of the questions that is, is asked is, what is your sex? And this year, um, for the first time, a new question has been added, which is, what's your gender identity? And that's fine. You know, great. I think we need to, know, we need to understand how many uh, trans people there are in the, in the country. You know, important information. And so the, the solution had been to, to ask two questions. What is your sex, male or female? And then, you know, what's your, if, what's your gender identity? So that's a voluntary question people could ask. And that would have been fine. But the trans lobbyists weren't satisfied with that. They wanted the sex question to be answered according to gender identity. So they kind of wanted two bites at the cherry, <laughs> you know. So, um, and we said, no, well, actually, sex means something. The question is, what is your sex? Um, and so in the end, there was going to be some guidance, some sort of small print uh, that was to explain to people what that question meant. Um, and the ONS had basically said people could put whatever's on 
their official documents, which some of them could have been self-identified documents. And we said, no, that's against the law. The law says Parliament decided that the question was, what is your sex? And sex means uh, either you know, it's, it's your legal sex, it's what's on your birth certificate, or if you've legally changed it. Um, and, you know, it was a legal question that we, went, that we then won in court. So um, that it was a principle that we had to win, that sex isn't the same as gender identity. And, and basically the, the ONS didn't have the right to redefine it. Um, it has to be, you know, Parliament puts down these laws. And if we are going to change the law, it has to be done in public, in Parliament, with everybody involved, not behind closed doors with a few people at the ONS. And so that's what we want in court, the principle that um, sex means sex. I mean, and that's all, we, that's all we're asking for. You know, gender identity, fine. Do what you want with gender identity, but leave sex alone. Sex means something too, and it's important to us. So keep it. That was a great win. But then, of course, that leaves many spectators or readers of columns about your win. Why was that seemingly easier to get done than cleaning up women's sports, than safeguarding women in prisons? The illogicity of the trans movement that says, but these quote unquote trans women are in danger by these men doesn't bear through logic because logically we know <laughs> back to the sports issue that the strength the body size etc of these men is much greater much larger than those of most women so it's not a case of i hate the michael phelps you know defense oh but michael phelps is a freak of nature so everything else follows no there's actually a, a visible physical scientific difference in strength that men have over women. So what has gone on that the prison system seems to be inordinately worried about effeminate men in prison, safeguarding them, but not about women, especially when we know, again, statistically, that women in prison have a much higher rate of physical domestic violence than the rest of society. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the issue with the census was a, a legal question that we could, we, we knew we would win that in court because it was written down in law that sex meant sex. The issue with prisons and the issue with sport is, is a lot more complex because it's a balancing of rights. It's a balancing of um, different interests. And then that's very difficult to get it's not a straightforward legal question. And so, um, I mean, we've just had the prisons policy analysed in court and the prison service were, were, it was ruled that the prison service is lawful, that the policy that they have is lawful. I would say it's wrong. It's not morally right, but technically it didn't break any laws and that's all court can, can do, uh, rule on. But the issue with prisons is the problem is, is that males who identify as women are being given equal value and equal sort of um, considerations to, to females in prison. Um, and so the idea is, is that, well, you know, we need to balance the rights. Um, so that balance means that we'll let the, the males into the women's prisons, but we'll put a few safeguards in there. We'll have some extra guards to keep the women safe, that kind of thing. Now, that's the problem with the idea of balancing and, and thinking that people have equal rights to a women's space. Um, what we, how we've got to that point where somebody thinks that the, the rights of a sex, a male sex offender are equivalent to the rights of a female person to have, you know, a male free space in prison. It is ludicrous. I mean, it really is ludicrous. Um, but it's a very difficult one to undo. It's a very difficult one to row back from now that we're there. Um, 
And uh, it will take time and it will take public opinion, I think, to push this back. It needs to get to a point where everybody realises that, no, that is not the fair balance. Um, because balance is, it, fair balance is relative, isn't it? It's, 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 uh, it's subjective, really. Um, it's about what, what value does society put on different things for different groups. And at the moment, for whatever reason, trans rights are given um, what I think is an unreasonable amount of weight. And women's rights are given, well, they're not really considered important. You know, that's misogyny in action, isn't it? Um, and so when it then comes to the balancing, where does that fair balance lie? Well, the fair balance is, is wrong. It, the, the wrong balance is struck. So, so the prison was doing, prisons are doing the right, they're not doing anything illegal because the court has said, yep, yeah, they are supposed to balance the rights of both. They put in some safeguards for women, but they've also allowed men in. That's sort of, that's balance. That's a good compromise. That's lawful. But we need to get to a point where nobody in their right mind would see that as fair balance. And so that's where we need to get the public involved. Everybody needs to sort of reset their moral compass on this, really. Value women, value women in prison um, and see that... Um, you know, sometimes it's okay to say no to trans people <laughs> um, because sometimes what they want is inappropriate. And for some males to want to be in women's prisons, I'm sorry, but that's inappropriate. You know, there has to be a line that can't be crossed. Um, and that's what we have to get to. This is the issue, though, where sex and gender, this is what the debate's been about for several years, are being pit against each other. But there is a problem where the ONS decision recognizes that sex and gender are not the same, nor are they on the same mm. platform. One can identify as many things. I just discussed with Naomi Cunningham about this. If I insist I am the best cook in the world, I don't think I have any legitimate right to claim employment discrimination if my colleagues at work do not mirror my delusion. And I think that we need to start addressing as a society, especially those of us on the left, this conundrum. Um, I've been speaking about this lately because I'm a bit obsessed with it, but it's the idea that yes is good and no is bad. The left deems that yes is good and no is bad. I think we need to learn a bit from the conservatives, frankly. I think we need to start looking at things case by case. How can one be talking about, let's say, Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement and understand that there were many, many women who said no to Harvey Weinstein and he did not accept no. This is what rape is. Mm. Why is it that women cannot say no? Suddenly, the Wokarati on the left, they are mostly on the left, could not handle that and cannot handle that. We're talking about a systemic misogyny that is taking place on the left specifically. Now, how is it that Martina was hounded so badly that other athletes are, are so pestered in this that some are afraid to speak up because even in semi-professional women's sports, and I've spoken to them, I'm sure you have as well, mm. they will lose their backers and they're already far underfunded compared to their male counterparts. So many people have said, well, the Tokyo Olympics would be a good place for women to just say, no, I'm not competing. And this might be an option considering that even the Olympics are now being contemplated as being canceled once again because of the virus. But I'm just wondering what our options are because as you rightfully said, no one cares about women's safety in prisons. We saw this with the scene in Dallas, Texas, or it was Fort Worth right next to Dallas, where women, two women, raised complaints about being sexually assaulted by men in the prison. To what degree, Nick, basically, this is what I'm asking, are we doing ourselves an own goal by even conceding that men can identify as women? Mm. Not to be mean to these people, but you and I both know that no doctor will tell an anorexic to lose weight. No mm. doctor will tell someone who's been kidnapped and is suffering from Stockholm syndrome 
to get married to their kidnapper once they're out of jail. No, but this is the one psychiatric pathology where somehow it's been captured across the board by every institution. And everyone is now being pressured to concede the emperor has new clothes. Hmm. Might it be time that women across the board stop even being nice a little bit? I'm talking about, let's just stop using that language. Might that help the issue more, do you think? Yeah, this is a really, a really interesting one because, I mean, I... Um, I I get criticised by both sides of the debate. You know, I, I'm not uh, I I, dis, I disappoint both sides sometimes. You know, I, I'm not you know by being what I would call moderate. Um, you know, I I can annoy feminists and I also annoy trans activists. <laughs> um, you know, some some women think that I don't go far enough. With with saying that trans women are men, um, for example, um, but you you know actually what I want to do is I want to make things change, and you have to live in the real world in the now, and in the now we are at the point where the general public or policymakers or the people that we need to persuade. I don't think are at the point that can take um, language that would feel to them offensive. Now, I'm not saying that that language is offensive, but I'm. I need to. I. I need to persuade. I need to get people to listen to me, and I'm at the point where I know that even saying that trans women go through a male puberty is almost off limits. But if I said to them, trans women are men, the door would be shut in my face and I wouldn't get anywhere. So I'd rather get in the room, talk about things, let people realise, you know, we're only going to get further. We're only going to get another step forward if people will listen to us and talk to us. We're not talking about getting the, the, the extreme trans rights activists to, to understand or to compromise. I'm talking about ordinary people. The ordinary um people in policy rooms that are making these decisions about sports or prisons or whatever. We need to them to realise that we have some legitimate points. Um, remember that they already consider us, that we've already been demonised in their eyes. So one of the things we have to do is just to show that we're, we're, we're decent people. <laughs> you know, so that's one of the things that I try to do. So, so... Yeah, so I, I can sometimes be criticised for not being clear enough, for not being hard enough on certain issues, and that it looks like compromise, it looks like weakness, but actually it's not. It's, it's about a clear-headed way of getting into the room that I need to get into so that I can have the conversation. And there's some language that today isn't possible to use. And although... It might be nice to have been able to have used it. We have to live in the real world. So I don't use the phrase trans women and men. Um, I will use preferred pronouns. But in policy meetings, I will be clear that I'm talking about male people, I'm talking about sex. And in fact, when pronouns are irrelevant at that point, you know, whether trans women are women, whether that mantra is, is correct is irrelevant. It's about sex being different to gender identity, and I try to talk about it in those terms. So I think it's important that some women do take a, a stronger stance than I do. Uh, they have a different role to play in this. Um, but I want to get into a policy meeting. I want to be heard by sceptics. And so there are certain things that I have to, I have to do. Um, and I do that in a way that I have certain lines that I don't cross. And there are certain things that, you know, and I will be absolute with, with that. Uh, but there are, other, there are battles that I don't need to, to get embroiled in. Um, pronouns is one. Um, so that's where I've made my position. That's, that's where I am on this. The thing is, is as you well know, the trans activists have used language to 
struggle up their hill. Their battle is being waged through words. There's a wonderful French-Tunisian anthropologist who I love, Jean Favretzada, who wrote the act in witchcraft is the word. In witchcraft, words wage war. Nobody ever talks about witchcraft to gain knowledge, but to gain power. And I keep thinking about her words there because she wrote an entire book on the power of words and witchcraft in the Bocage in France. And the transactivists have been waging this through words. That's how they got the IOC on board. That's how they got the prison system on board. That's how they got the NUJ on board to tell me how to write about them. No other group in history has had that kind of power. Yeah, I mean, you're right. But language is absolutely crucial to this. Um, but I think we have to work at it at the right pace. But each, depending on what in, an individual's job is in this area, you know, I'm trying to achieve different things to other people. Um, then we need to use the language that's right for the moment. Um, and I push it as far as I can go to be effective. So I think that's, you know, it's a judgment call. It's a, it's a really contentious area because it is absolutely right that it's the language that has messed this up. Um, and if we were starting from the beginning, we certainly wouldn't be conceding any ground because it's the language that has, that has messed it up. Um, and, you know, the mantras, trans women and women, has been so powerful. Um, but it's extremely difficult to row back from that at this moment. And so I'm holding on with my fingernails to the words male and female, like my life depends on it, you know, rather than getting um, distracted or injured or um, uh, disregarded by battles around the word woman. Although I will say that I am working um, with with IPSO at the moment on, uh, so this is the press regulator for newspapers. Um, there is an area there where we're seeing headlines and there was one just the other day, woman um, found with a thousand images of child porn, for example, or woman rapes child, all sorts of ridiculous headlines. And of course they're not women. We're talking about transgender people. We're talking about males. We're talking about men. And um, it's extremely important that we, we, we get the guidance change from IPSO to, to stop people using those headlines. Um, that if when it comes to an area where someone's sex matters, and when it comes to crime, it does, their sex matters there. It matters, it matters if it's a woman that's committed the crime compared to a man, because a, a man committing a, a a sexual crime is commonplace, a woman doing it is rare. And so you get clickbait headlines with um, if, if people are using the word woman instead of male or trans woman or, or just not using it at all. I mean, there's no need to even define someone's sex in a headline. So there is an important battle to be won there, is that we mustn't, in, in common language, when the word woman is used, most people, most readers will read it and understand that to mean a female person. And therefore we mustn't be tricking people or misleading people in the press by using the word woman to mean some ideological sense of being a woman. Um, so I'm, I'm, we're doing quite a lot of work on that behind the scenes, trying to, to to protect the word woman. So the woman should the word woman should only be used if it means a female. And if you're not referring to a female, don't use that word woman. So I'm not going as far as to say the headline must say man rapes a child, uh, but just simply don't use the word man or woman um, and make sure it's clear in the text that that person identifies as transgender. If they have to use female pronouns, uh, because that's what the court did. This, that has to happen in the press, but it needs to be clear. People mustn't be misled. Um, and I think that's, that's all we can really do at this, at this time. I mean, I think we need to go further than that over, the over years. 
uh, things, language needs to be corrected. Um, but we, you know, we've got a long journey ahead there and we can only do so much at once. Um, and like I say, I always go back to what can I achieve? What's the most effective thing I can do now to achieve some change? Thank you.